Hi, welcome to Google Blitz. Today we are going to be talking with uh, Francesco Shortino. So my name is Francesco. I'm a grad student in MIT in Boston, and uh, I am now in, enjoying San Diego for a couple of weeks. My work is on nuclear fusion. My background is in laboratory astrophysics, and now I'm working on partic particle transport in tokamak devices. So Francesco has worked on many experiments that are trying to make fusion energy possible um, in Princeton, in San Diego, and uh, in Lausanne? And in Lausanne and MIT as well. In MIT as well. Um, and today we wanted to talk a little bit about where fusion energy is headed. At least for me, uh, growing up, fusion energy was always on the horizon. When I was growing up, people told me, yes, fusion energy is the energy of the future. It is the only way by which we can have sustainable energy. Uh, but obviously, that hasn't materialized in the present. So where exactly are we in the large scale of things? What is the future of fusion energy? What are the challenges that it faces? And how can we overcome those challenges? So as you say, Fusion has always been 20 years away. That's a saying that we've had since the 60s. And just to give a brief historical perspective, at the end of the World War, you know, we, were we had developed some understanding of how fission worked. And it was relatively quick afterwards to get fission in a nuclear power station that could make energy. And quickly people said, well, fusion is the process that powers the stars. And it's so much more effective, so much more powerful. So they developed the H-bomb. Afterwards, it seemed just logical to develop that inside a nuclear power station. And it turned out to be a lot harder than the fission case. So fusion scientists have tried not to make too many promises, but somehow some always slip through. And so there has been always the, pers the, the perspective, the, the vision that fusion was promised to be quick, but it never was. The way, the location where I think we are now, although in no way I have a complete perspective, I'm a graduate student at the end of the day, um, is that we are making progress in using current technology. And that's what really makes the difference. The In the last few years, you know, we, we have been working on this really large experiment that is called ITER in southern France. And that's where most of the world has put its hopes of developing fusion. And uh, ITER is an interesting project. We can talk more about it. To many people, it's the hope of where fusion arriving at a good result that demonstrates that fusion energy can be brought into this century rather than mm -hmm. the next. Um, I think that there is also other possibilities we should pursue at the same time, but that is, we, we should always take many paths, mm -hmm. not just one. You were talking about how we built the H-bomb. We have been using fusion for a long time, or at least we have been able to use fusion for a long time. Um, but we haven't been able to do it in a controlled environment like we have been able to do with fission energy. Uh, why is it? Why is it fusion so different from fission in that regard? Yeah, there are lots of differences between fusion and fission. Actually, most of the, it, it's quite difficult to point out some similarities other than the fact that it's nuclear energy. In fusion is like fission, relatively simple to use as an explosive in an explosive device. Actually, an H-bomb uses fission to then fuse 
light atoms to make fusion. So just to get a physical perspective of what fusion and fission are, in fission, we're trying to divide one of the heaviest atoms, uranium usually, and that releases some energy by the standard formula of Einstein, E equals mc squared. Some of the mass gets changed into energy, and that energy can be used for explosions or to make energy, to, to make electrical energy. In fusion, instead, we try to take small atoms, usually some isotope of hydrogen, and we try to bring them close enough that they don't repel, the ions don't repel each other, and some of their mass gets changed into energy. The idea is still change some mass into energy, mm -hmm. but they are quite the opposite of each other. Now, the problem is fusion is a lot harder to do than fission. It has this, there is no... I don't think people had a clear understanding that that was coming towards them. That's, that's why we had a lot of promises of having fusion relatively fast. But time has shown that there is a lot of problems. One um, key difference also is that in fission, you have to contain the process by trying to slow it down. If you know how, the, how a fission power station works, there is uranium is brought to a critical state where it starts uh, fissing and neutrons um, come out of the uranium and they create a chain reaction. So you have to actively try to prevent the reaction from going too fast. In fusion, it's the opposite. In fusion, we have a very dilute gas of hydrogen or similar isotopes, and we have to really push it to make fusion happen. If we don't do it, the whole reaction dumps down. So it's, a very, it's in an inherently safe way of making energy, because if you were to lose control of it, it would just turn off, basically. Mm -hmm. it's, you just have to inject some gas, some cold gas, into your fusion reactor, and the whole thing turns off. It's also inherently safe in the sense that it makes no long-lived radioactive materials. There's lots of benefits, no CO2. It's quite similar to what we could define as the ideal source of energy. Mm -hmm. And we have been trying to contain fusion for a long time, go to the energy levels where you can have fusion and still contain it. And we have not been successful. We have been trying since the 60s, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, that's right. And after almost 60 years of failures, why do we still think that it is possible? Is it possible that fusion is just not possible on Earth? So as fun as it might sound, I wouldn't say that we have had 60 years of failures. Actually, I think we've had 60 years of learning. And that might sound very rhetorical at first. So let me explain what I mean by that. We've tried several approaches to doing fusion. Today, a few are being pursued. The so-called tokamak program is quite clearly the most advanced, the closest mm -hmm. to reaching... Could you spell out what is a tokamak? Sure. Yeah. So a tokamak is um, it, it's a Russian acronym for toroidal containment chamber, magnetic chamber. So it's essentially a donut-shaped chamber imaging uh, this empty space in the shape of a donut where we create a highly charged gas, so an ionized gas, and that gas is called a plasma. And we try to create the statistical conditions for this gas, ionized gas, to create fusion. So to have some ions that come together and make fusion to insignificant numbers. So that's what we do in a tokamak reactor usually, where we have also a current going around the device. A similar concept is a stellarator, which is technically, um, the, the difference is mostly related to how you get this current created in the device. And one such stellarator is developed in Germany now. And it's a very interesting project. Another completely different type of fusion study is the one of so-called inertial confinement fusion. That's 
developed here in California to a large extent in a facility, a national facility called the National Ignition Facility. And the National Ignition Facility is really large. I think the size is five football pitches together. And the, the idea is they take 192 times, I think, the most powerful laser of the world. And they aim all these 192 lasers on the same spot uh, where we place a capsule of deuterium and tritium fuel for fusion. And so we try to compress this capsule so much that it makes fusion. I, in my opinion, this is not exactly the most promising way of making fusion due to the fact that these capsules have to be replaced uh, in a fusion reactor. You would have to do it very quickly. We're not exactly there. I think there is many interesting physics studies that can be done on these systems, but it's not the most promising fusion method. Okay. There are also a number of startups that are growing during these days. There is a couple here in California, one in um, the UK, one in Canada. There is a number, and that's a very positive sign. They are trying to create new, to think of new methods to make fusion uh, that are not uh, necessarily based on the tokamak concept that has been proven so far to be the most promising, the, the quickest uh, in some sense. The results are only partially known to the academic community, but it's known that they are moving very fast. So you mentioned ITER. Which of these uh, mechanisms does ITER use? ITER is a tokamak. Okay. ITER came out of an international agreement, I think, starting from already maybe the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, and then the design, the agreements and the design process has gone on for quite a few years. And um, ITER is the largest scientific experiment in the world, I believe. Um, its planning has been incredible. It, Many the, the countries that collaborate in the ITER construction are the United States, Europe, China, Korea, South Korea, Japan, and Russia. And India. And India, that's right. And um, the collaboration to such a large scale is obviously very complicated. And I think that scale has proven to be ineffective. Um, it's, an, it's a project that we have to bring to a, to a to completion because there is so much we can learn from ITER. But in the process of building ITER, we've also learned that it's too large and too expensive. So that, that's also an important thing that we learn from fusion. It's not just the physics, not just the engineering. It's also the, sh the massive scale of what we're trying to achieve requires an international collaboration. And learning how to do that is different than how we do CERN. It's different than how we do the International Space Station. It's a number of challenges that we, we have to try to learn from. ITER is bigger than CERN or the space station. Um, but why is it different to get a collaboration of that size working? Is it purely a function of size or is it because of a lot of other technical matters? I think it's a combination of technical matters and also um, the aim of the experiment is very different. CERN aims at finding fundamental physics. Uh, ITER aims at delivering the knowledge that we need to develop energy for the world. The day we figure out how to make fusion energy for the world, that will impact the economies of every country so widely. So it's in the ITER agreements, there are a number of conditions that require every country to do a number of tasks. Several countries are have the task, for instance, of developing these really large magnets so that then their industries will be able in the future to produce these magnets for their own developments. And this division of tasks has lots of ups and downs. One of the obvious downs is that it doesn't really make too much sense 
from a scientific point of view, a technical point of view, to have Japan producing a coil, a magnetic, really large coil, and Italy producing another one, and the US producing another one, because the ability to build one could be used at the same location to build the others. Once you build one, you can transfer some of that knowledge to build the others. That makes sense from a technical point of view, but more politically, it's also important for every country to be able to advance the research after ITER. So developing the local skills to continue after ITER is also important. These kind of complications explain why ITER is so expensive. We're looking at, uh, I think some estimates now say $40 billion. Four zero. Four zero. You know, that might look like, it is a, obviously a very large amount of money. It's also significantly over budget, uh, which is disappointing to most. So what was the original planned budget? I am not sure, but I think we're definitely looking at more than a factor of two. Okay. Um, but my number is very rough. Um, I might be optimistic on that number. I remember it being 8 billion, so I think it's a factor of five. I would not exclude that. <laughs> Let's put it that way. It, the construction of ITER, as I said, it's teaching us that these kind of collaborations should be handled in a different way. Some of the mistakes that people have done with ITER, I think, would be would look silly today. And they do look silly. When we have a venture capitalist group today that decides that they want to invest in a topic, let's say energy, and they have a certain amount of money, hardly anybody today would recommend to put, to put all your money into one topic. So most people would argue for minimizing the risk by having many different approaches. Nine will die, the tenth might succeed. Ether has been thought of in a very different way. It was thought as a one chance for the world to bring together forces and break that barrier to make fusion energy that seemed necessary. Building a bigger device is not, or at least was not seen at that time as being just a, a vice, you know. It was thought to be a necessity. The, the amount of fusion that you can get from a device scales very clearly with the size of the machine. Turns out that there are other scalings, such as the one with the strength of the magnetic field, which are even stronger. And so today, if we were to build ether, we would probably go in a different way. And there are some interesting projects coming out now that try to use new technologies, mostly related to high-temperature superconductors, to explore more that path to fusion energy. You said that it would have been better for us to have 10 different projects. But considering that these projects have a minimum cost, especially given the political climate of sharing resources and so forth, could we have afforded having 10 different projects? Certainly, we couldn't have had 10 Eaters. But, you know, one of the good things of having many universities working on these projects, many national laboratories, also now several startups, is that having people from different backgrounds with different ideas come to face a tough challenge. That is, as, as tough as it is, it is too important for us to drop it. You know, differentiation of the risk is very important. Okay, this leads me to another question, which is, Let's say that ITER is successful, or let's say one of these fusion energy projects are successful. Does that mean that the power of fusion will be confined to, no pun intended, to a small number of parties that can use it? Or do you think that it will become something that will actually be proliferated around the world and people will use it? That's a really, really great question. The way ITER was planned was so that fusion would be for the good of the world. It was thought as just I, the, the plan of ITER was actually begun, I believe, before the end of the Cold War. Okay, there were the, the first steps, I believe, were made by, and I might be wrong on this, were made by Russians and Americans at a time when there were still political tensions, but it seemed to be clear that 
a large-scale effort like the one of ITER should have been done to overcome this barrier. As I said, that's really not what we would do today, but it's important to go until the end. Let's say it does happen, and you mentioned around 12 countries. Is that, was that the number? Uh, it depends what, how you count them. The European okay. Union includes quite a few, um, okay. but it's six large partners. Six large seven. partners. So you have these six or seven large partners, and many of these are actually very wealthy nations, and uh, many of them are developed nations. And in the future, when we are trying to talk about the growth of other economies such as Brazil and uh, many countries in Africa who are going to have very large energy needs, do you think that fusion energy is uh, a possibility for them as well? I think that was the initial objective of ITER, was to create um, shared knowledge, to, to create a source of energy that would not be confined just to the most powerful nations. It is obviously very difficult to imagine a poor country, a developing country creating their own tokamak when the developed nations cannot do it today. But the beauty of fusion, as, at least in the tokamak concept, it's worth spending another couple of words to describe why we are so focused, why people haven't given up, when over 60 years we've seen everything change in human technology, but we still don't have fusion. So the reason why we haven't given up is because, as I mentioned, fusion is free of carbon dioxide, you're just fusing together hydrogen atoms. There is no long-lived radioactivity, it cannot explode, it cannot proliferate into nuclear weapons, and you are, as I said, using just mostly hydrogen isotopes. Everybody has hydrogen isotopes. The thing that would prevent country, a developing country from accessing fusion is purely technology. But the way we have worked on fusion is completely open source. Anybody can access the resources that we have. There is very few cases of knowledge that has been gained experimentally that is confined to a certain organization. The startups that are being created now are somewhat different along those lines, at least the ones that I mentioned before from uh, California and Canada. But there is more and more an understanding that you're not at the critical threshold to make fusion. You should share knowledge. And these startups are actually coming to conferences. They are sharing a, a good amount of what they're developing. And I think that's very important. Tell me a bit more about these startups. Uh, certainly the technical expertise required to do something like uh, fusion or even plasma physics, which is a very central component of uh, any fusion reactor. There's very few people who can actually do it. Where are these startups coming from? Where are they getting the funding to have such large projects and so much technical expertise on something that is not very certain to be sustainable for a large number of years? I think most of the startups that are working on fusion at the moment are supported by large philanthropists. For sure, Amazon is supporting one of them, and I believe the Gates Foundation is also supporting another one. They are, as I said, my f impression is that they're not exactly close to the objective, depending on what you define the objective to be. Um, if you define it to be production of energy to bring into the houses, then they're really not quite there. What they're working on mostly is thinking about configurations for to make fusion that are different than the tokamak often, or that use new technology, as I mentioned, high-temperature superconductors are very promising. And they, by, by changing the configuration, they have to struggle with a number of things that have been already faced in the tokamak program through universities and national labs. Some of that is stability of the machine itself. One of the biggest things, the criticisms that uh, people have had about fusion energy is that we have invested so much money. As you were talking about ITER, ITER has gone over budget by several factors, but we still keep putting money into it. 
how would you justify the so many governments putting in this amount of money into it yeah what you're what you're pointing out is a very common um, view of what fusion how fusion has gone over over time actually reality is quite different than what most people perceive and um, the reason for that i think is quite understandable so fusion was begun we began exploring in the 60s as you said and uh, we the, the initial funding aimed at getting fusion in a relatively reasonable time scale it turns out that any projection that we did on how fusion would have been explored how we, how fast we could have achieved it was always with a view of what the budget would have been over time that was way more optimistic than reality actually showed us so we've been underfunded so much that may any prediction that would have demanded of us having fusion energy by the 1990s was really quite unreasonable it's interesting that if you plot if you make a plot of a number of different metrics of how much we have achieved over time fusion effectiveness let's call it has outrun moore's law so the law reg regarding the power of chips by far what we've learned has been impressive we're just not quite there yet it turns out that we just had so much more to to learn to practice than we expected initially that is what is giving us a lot of problems but the main difference between moore's law and fusion energy is that for moore's law to be useful we just need computers i mean yes we have faster computers the year after but we can still use the computers that we have now sure moore's law is about objects that we already have was yeah. the fusion and already expansion. usable whereas even if fusion energy is only 90% efficient you need it to be at least 100% uh, sure. efficient actually you need even more yeah. right we don't just want to produce more energy than we put into the machine we want to produce enough energy to make it economical we want this to be a reasonably cheap source of energy that is available to as many that is clean but the economical aspect is important so we have to think in the long term how do we make this available to people so right now you go to as a plasma physicist and uh, as a fusion researcher you go to countries and governments not you personally but uh, the entities that you work for and you ask them for money and this money is often in the order of hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars how do you tell them that this time the estimates that you have are going to be good that that discussion is obviously difficult it's easier when you face it on a technical term um but it's important to realize what scales you're looking at when you discuss the ambitions of fusion you're talking about the energy source for humanity expectedly once you get it there is no next step right so we want to understand we want to get fusion and then keep using it for a very long time so what you what we should comparing the cost of fusion to is really the amount of money that we use to look for new petrol or how much the money that we use to develop you know new ways to transport natural gas and those numbers are so much larger than the ones that we use for fusion that the few billions that we've been investing to let's say to get ether running it's a very small scale and we should be careful in not being too impressed by how many humans there are on earth the size of these projects is comparable at least to the importance of the challenge that they try to achieve so another challenge often for funding is um, getting the word out there to let the people know what you are saying for example that fusion is not a lost hope that if we put money into it then we could one day get that uh, goal yeah and i think actually we should be very optimistic 
about the way fusion is going. And these new developments with startups are really pointing to the fact that we're getting close to ways of putting that out in the energy market. As you say, it's also very important to tell people about fusion before they find it in their own houses. We need to make people understand where their tax is going and why they should agree when their senators are supporting this type of research. It's also important for people like me to do outreach, you know, to show the facilities where we do this type of research. That's something I engage in quite a lot. And, you know, generally being very open about this type of research, clarifying to everybody that this is not classified, has not been classified since 50 years from now. And we're doing this for the benefit of humanity. So there is one facility in San Diego. Is that something that the general public can see even a part of? That is uh, not quite. Uh, That facility is managed by General Atomics, which is a company that engages in research for fusion, fission, weaponry. So it has quite specific regulations. General Atomics works on fusion for the Department of Energy. So it works on grants and it is completely declassified. But because the facility also, let's say it's managed by an organization that has militarized ambitions, that that one is not so easy to visit on a random basis. But you could ask, there are schools that go and visit the fusion tokamak called D3D at General Atomics. If you wanted to visit facilities that are in less um, difficult situations, for instance, the tokamak that is at MIT, all you need to do is email a grad student or email the, the outreach coordinator and you can drop by anytime. You mentioned the Department of Energy. And uh, obviously, a lot of the funding for fusion research is coming from national governments, even though there's a lot of influx from private enterprises. Now, the vast majority is from national governments. Currently, we are seeing uh, in the U.S. a huge shift away from renewable and uh, non-conventional energy sources. And we are uh, seeing that the government, uh, the Trump administration is more favorable towards fossil fuels and so forth. Have you seen that personally affect fusion research? Actually, in the recent budget, there has been an increase for research in uh, anything that has to do with nuclear, as far as I understand. Mm -hmm. Fusion has seen an increase of budget of 19%, which is quite remarkable and very pleasing, of course. Um, We kind of have the feeling that some of that is to do with the fact that we are called nuclear fusion, and we don't necessarily want to be associated with fission, as I think the community makes clear at every possible occasion. But there is there is good signs on that to that extent. The European Union is investing very heavily also. China is investing very heavily on fusion. The trends that we have on general renewable energy, those often are separated from the ones of nuclear fusion. The budgets of these two fields are often seen as uh, quite different. Um, yes, the standard renewable energy uh, investment in the United States is going down quite a bit. And generally, the Department of Energy has been shifting the amount of funding over time, which makes certainly research um, a little more complicated, I suppose, to plan. Um, but we're not at the lowest point. Another thing, when we're talking about the energy needs of the, uh, of the world, there is obviously production of energy but there is also consumption of energy. How long do you think we have before we need a solution like fusion, which will be able to counteract the growing energy needs for the world? That's a very pragmatic question, and I like pragmatic questions. We are really late, right? Looking at how we should bring 
renewable resources into the market, it's very important that we do it as as quickly as possible and that we try to make them as effective as possible. On the other hand, this can hardly be imagined to be a final solution to the energy problem, given the rising population, given the, the costs of having solar panels and all the other technologies. Some of those limitations will remain in time. So we need in the long term something like fusion. It's very difficult to point out anything else other than fusion. But fusion could be used, for, in, for instance, to provide the energy for carbon capture. Once you have energy, you have a way to deal with climate change to a large extent and other challenges, including you know, an increase in energy needs, which can be expected, should not be encouraged, but should, should be expected. We need fusion as fast as possible. I think that the current efforts to use of the CFS to use high temperature superconductors to bring that into the private sector as quickly as possible they're very promising and they suggest that we could look at fusion in the next the the, the official dates it's looking something like 20 years mm-hmm. so the ambition is definitely to get it before 2050 even according to the ITER plan that has been shifted over time the Europeans have a, a very clear roadmap on how they would like to develop fusion over time it's a very ambitious plan, maybe overambitious, but it, it tries to bring fusion energy in the houses around 2050. Well, and uh, by in the houses, do you mean in the houses that are going to be accessible by ITER? Or do you mean um, that... So, ITER is a demonstration. Okay. It's not an actual reactor. ITER does, is never going to be connected to the grid. Um, the European program is the one that is hosting ITER. So it's paying for most of the budget, um, although it's a wide collaboration, as I said. The Europeans have a plan to have then a demonstration power plant that they call DEMO. And DEMO is supposed to demonstrate every single aspect of how you connect to the grid. In the United States, I don't think that there is a plan on how to do that right now. And the plans of this new machine that has been just advertised, managed by CFS, um, they are to test also some of the necessities to collect the neutrons and make actual energy. But then even the plan of the MIT group is to develop another machine called ARC um, that is then meant to really be the last step before we get fusion energy in the houses. Another thing, uh, you mentioned that the main ingredients uh, to get fusion are the uh, heavier isotopes of, isotopes of hydrogen, tritium and deuterium. Tell me a bit more about them and uh, how commonly are they found? Do I find it in my tap water? or You find deuterium pretty easily. Actually, there is a, a fraction of water is always deuterium, and isolating it is very easy. So deuterium is essentially very, very cheap. Tritium is not so easy to come by. It's actually slightly unstable. So it has a half a half-life of about 11 years, I seem to remember. So if you have a, a certain amount of tritium after this time, 11 years, you will have much less than you initially had. So we don't have much tritium at the moment. I believe that the most of the resources of tritium are actually currently in Canada. And you will have to actively make tritium. That is particularly easy at the beginning when you have a um, heavy water reactor, fission reactor, which is quite ironic, I believe. Um, so if you have a heavy water reactor, you produce, you can produce some of this tritium. And that's why Canada has it, because they have this type of reactor. Getting a fusion reactor, a fusion program started would mean that you would have to access some of this tritium. One of the nice things about fusion is that you will be completely independent in the long term because you could produce your own tritium. So you would consume tritium and then through the fusion, re- the fusion reactions in the core of the plasma would produce neutrons that would then be absorbed, likely by a, a blanket of lithium or something like that, that would then produce tritium, 
which you could put back into the machine so you would become independent. Indeed, you could imagine having producing more tritium than you consume, so some of that tritium could be used for new machines. In the long term, you, we don't really imagine that being, it's a technical challenge to design these systems, but not a game stopper in any way. Both of these materials can be, can be handled quite well. It's important to point out, the outcome of a fusion reactor, of a tokamak reactor, as we imagine it today, would be helium. And helium not only is not dangerous, but actually you can even sell it. That's not what we would do, likely because of the really small amounts that we deal with. But that's to say, we don't get plutonium, we get helium. But uh, so you would, for example, use lithium in order to get uh, more tritium. But uh, even lithium resources, especially now with uh, batteries being so important, lithium resources are also scarce. Is there essentially at one point are you going to run into a wall and say this resource is something that is limited? Fair worry, but not, not really. Um, the amount of lithium that we use in our electronics is by far larger than the one that we would, as far as I understand, we would need in, a, in fusion reactors. Um, here we're talking about not so many fusion reactors. So if you compare it to the massive scale of how many electronic devices we have, you know, even small amounts sum up. Um, so although lithium will not be so easy to come by, we do have enough for thousands of years. In the long term, it's hard to imagine any other source of energy that gets us where fusion can get us. One of the things that people are very excited about is space travel. I was wondering, can you use nuclear fusion for space travel? Once you have enough electrical energy, you can use it for anything. Um, you might know that the Mars rover that we currently have, Curiosity, is powered by a fission, a small fission reactor. Getting a fusion reactor to that scale is quite distant now. We struggle to build a reactor that is of large scale, so making it small is even more challenging. But in the long term, I don't see why, why fusion wouldn't enable general use of more energy. Once you, if you had this running to the level that is called ignition, where you power a fusion, a tokamak reactor until it, it just sustains itself, then you will basically be getting energy out of essentially water, deuterium and tritium, and you can use it for space travel or anything else that requires really large amounts of energy. But uh, when it comes to rockets, you need a propellant. It's not just energy. You need Newton's third law. You need to be pushing something down for you to go up. Mm -hmm. So I, I am no way an expert of rockets. But you mentioned Newton's third law. What, one thing that you can, I can imagine doing with, if you had enough electrical energy, would be to ionize some material, some gas, at the back of the rocket. And that uh, ionized matter could then be put across a really large electric field, which you produce by having a lot of energy. And that acceleration of these ions would then be pushed on the ground or outside of the rocket. And there you go with your third law of Newton. Mm -hmm. So what you will be, your propellant would essentially be a gas. Hmm. This, these ideas are explored already in um, a field called of plasma thrusters. Plasma thrusters, I am, I don't know much about them, but they are a very real thing and they are being used. It's not in the future, it's today. So as we start wrapping up, um, I have a couple of questions which are aimed towards people who are considering going into fusion as a career. For me in particular, a lot of uh, people have told me that fusion is not a career that you want to go into because as we started, it's been almost 60 years that fusion has yep. been 20 years away. So you're a person who is entering the field. What would you say to somebody who wants to enter the field of fusion energy? So as, as you know, I'm quite optimistic. And I did decide not so long ago to go into fusion. And one of the reasons for me is that there is a lot of motivation. There is, you meet a lot of people that have been dedicating their 
research tool cracking a problem that we do know is going to impact the world much more than anything else we can think about. This is going to be more important than quantum computing, more important than anything that we're currently developing. Getting there is significantly harder than anybody had thought to start with. But there is a number of problems that are being tackled on fusion that are interesting to people in many subjects. Some of them are in material science, for instance, in developing materials that can sustain these enormous thermal loads. Um, the challenge that I personally face is the one of particle transport and turbulence. Turbulence is a challenge in many fields. There is thousands of PhD students, I imagine, that work on that in different contexts. Plasma turbulence, you can imagine that it's even more complex than just classical fluid turbulence, given that all your matter is ionized. Um, there are challenges, engineering challenges to do with massive scale of these devices that we're trying to imagine. There is motivation both on the technical side and there is clear reason why you should join the effort. Since we are at UCSD, it's also good to point out that UCSD is a very important player in this effort. It's one of the main institutions working with General Atomics just in La Jolla. And there is a number of people that work from UCSD on the theoretical aspect of fusion, uh, also on the experimental. So if you're interested and you're listening to this radio, you could check out the resources that are available to you. And so the last question before we sign off, this is what we started with and uh, we have raised it a couple of times during the program. How far away is fusion energy, do you think? 20 years, 40 years, what do you think? Do you think the 2050 goal that uh, the EU has is even possible? That's the question that no fusion scientist should ever answer with too definite uh, response, just learning from the past. We shouldn't really say a number of years. What I'll say is that I think ITER is going to show us lots of interesting things. I hope we will learn a lot also before ITER. The, the developments that I mentioned of CFS, and you can check it on Google if you look for Commonwealth Fusion Systems. It's a really interesting project. If that worked, as we hope, we will know very soon. Their developments are looking at 10 years to tell us whether this is feasible in a short time scale. If that didn't go through, and I very much hope that it will, then we're looking at 2050. Is 2050 the final answer? No, it's not. There is a number of things that we learn on the way. The path that I have been describing that is being pursued now at MIT is, as they put it, faster, cheaper, more effective. Can that, ask, can that get us fusion energy within our lifetimes? I have no doubt. 